Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Um, the news closest to home today is the news most relevant to you. And the good news of the gospel is the news most relevant to all of us, always and in all ways. So let's be mindful of that as we survey the headline news of the day. We're actually going to talk about news today, our consumption of it, how it not only informs us, but forms us. And that is the conversation we'll be having in the second part of the second hour with Jeffrey Bilbro, his book is Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. And so I just wanted to tee that up so that um, you don't miss it. Or if you know in advance that you can't join us live, be sure and listen to the podcast later today when it's posted at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, here are uh, a few headlines that I'm just going to give you pretty much without comment here. The Food and Drug Administration on Monday authorized the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for emergency use in adolescents ages 12 to 15. That, my friends, is not my advocacy, but my uh, sharing of information with you for you to discern for yourselves how you might uh, use that news. All right. The FBI confirmed on Monday that the dark side hacking group was responsible for the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline over the weekend. Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger uh, said that the administration believes Darkside to be a, quote, criminal actor rather than a state-sponsored terror organization, but is continuing its investigation. Uh, So... The um, the Colonial Pipeline is significant in terms of the way that you and I get um, get our gasoline, well, or at least the way I do. Whether or not you get yours that way depends on where you live. All right. So, but there is an uptick in gas prices in some places across the country because of the cyber hack of the Colonial Pipeline over the weekend. I just think that it, you know, it just reveals how vulnerable we are. All right. The U.S. Coast Guard uh, on Monday. First of all, just note this for a moment. The U.S. Coast Guard, which you might have assumed was guarding the U.S. coast. So the U.S. Coast Guard on Monday fired about 30 warning shots at Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy ships. Uh, They were their fast boats. They were in the Strait of Hormuz, and the Pentagon um, has announced that the U.S. Coast Guard fired on them. A Defense Department spokesman said that there were 13 of these Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Navy boats uh, within 150 yards of U.S. Navy vessels. So the U.S. Coast Guard does not just guard the U.S. coast. The U.S. Coast Guard also guards um, the U.S. uh, Navy vessels uh, around the world. So anyway, there you go. Yeah, you might not have known that. Kind of fun. Kind of fun information in terms of how our military works together. Uh, not fun information in terms of what's going on in the Strait of Hormuz. The White House also said yesterday that the Department of Labor is going to, quote, reinstate 
work search requirements for unemployment insurance recipients. So what does that mean? Um, Well, in part, that means that for the last, well, since March of 2020, you didn't have to actually prove that you were looking for a job in order to get uh, unemployment benefits in the United States of America. Now you are going to have to begin actually looking for a job and prove that for some reason you cannot get a job in uh, in a job economy where there are at least seven million available positions across the country, uh, and so you uh, you can't turn down a job um, unless you have a very very specific concern if you want to continue receiving benefits. So there you go. Uh, one other thing that happened yesterday, and we're going to talk about this later in the program when we have uh, Jeff Barrows on from. Um, Christian Medical and Dental Association, but the Department of Health and Human Services, also known as HHS, announced yesterday that it is going to um, reinterpret Title IX prohibitions on sex-based discrimination to include sexual orientation and gender identity. I I have been telling you, watch for SOGI language from the federal government. Well, here it is, sexual orientation and gender identity Um, And so this reinterpretation means that hospitals will now be open to possible penalties if they should decline to perform, quote unquote, gender transition procedures for otherwise healthy individuals who request that their um, sexual organs be removed for no reason other than they would prefer they be removed. So there you go. That is where we are headed. Um, Let me ask you this. As you are considering what you pass along to others what you in turn have also received. You know, Paul talks about that in terms of the gospel. I'm passing along to others what I in turn have also received. Uh, I, I would ask you this, as you consider what you pass along to others that you in turn have also received, what do you use as the test? What's the filter? Here's mine. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? And yep, for those of you in Rotary, hmm, that, that, that pretty much sounds like uh Sounds familiar. All right, next up, I got Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. We're going to continue our survey of today's headlines. We'll be right back. The sun is still closing or still shining when I close my eyes. Uh, Nick Pitts is with us, the fellow, a fellow for the Institute for Global Engagement. Um, Nick, is that true? Did you go to bed early enough last night that the sun was still shining when you closed your eyes? Uh, well, you know, uh, it was it was cloudy all yesterday. So uh, unfortunately, <laughs> so uh, hard to I say. can say figuratively, <laughs> figuratively, yes, the sun was still shining. shining. It was still the day the Lord has made and rejoice. Easy, to, uh, easy to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, uh, but literally, no, it was not. It was. A, it's been a rainy night here in Dallas. All right. So, see, I think that the figured. I think that the song, the person singing the song, is is singing figuratively. Right. The sun is still shining, even when I close my eyes, even when it seems really dark and dreary, and even if I'm living in the midst of a cloudy day. Right. The sun is still shining. I think it's uh, I'm taking it to be, as you took it, metaphorical. Okay, so um, 
Catholic schools are in the headlines. They are apparently losing students at record rates, and hundreds of Catholic schools are closing across the country. What's going on here? Yeah, so at least 209 of the country's nearly 6,000 Catholic schools have closed over the past year. Um, uh, obviously, this has been a very challenging year for many families and, and kids. Um, but then you kind of add into the pandemic, and the pandemic's only intensified a trend that's been apparent over the past 20 years, whereas around 100 schools were closing every year pre-pandemic. Now we're starting to see a much more precipitous drop out of the pandemic. And so nationwide Catholic school enrollment fell 6.4% at the start of the year, the largest single-year decline um, since the 1970s. And there's a, a variety of different reasons that they would say for that. One, just a uh, a drop in Catholicism uh, nationwide. Just Catholics are making up less of the population today. Uh, Catholics make up about 20% of the U.S. population, according to Pew, um, a 2019 study of Pew. It's down from about 24% in 2007. I think the second reason that you can see after the drop in Catholicism is just a loss of trust in Catholic institutions. Um, tragically, there's just been so many uh, just... Uh, uh, sad, sinful um, discoveries over the past 20 years about what's happening um, in Catholic schools and Catholic churches. And just parents are more reluctant, more hesitant, and less prone to want to send their kids to these places. And then, so third, and it, which is obvious for many, of, many, and probably your listeners, is just the financial piece. Going to Catholic school just costs it costs quite a bit of money um, to send your kid to private school, and uh, individuals and families across the U.S. right now are making it's it's a little bit more difficult um, to kind of fork over that amount of money to invest in secondary education. I always go back to the stat carbon that just kind of reverberates whenever I think about financially. Is that forty percent of Americans um, uh, can't afford an emergency? Uh, emergency fund of four hundred dollars. So, if an emergency strikes, that can, uh, is four hundred dollars. Forty percent of Americans would not be cash flush enough to be able to um, pay that. Yeah, which is which is probably the part of this conversation that um, that folks feel most urgently. But it it mm -hmm. changes the fabric of education in the United States of America to consider. Um, not just the rapid rate of closure of, of Catholic schools, but the rapid rate of closure closure of other religiously affiliated schools as well, not just uh, K through 12, but also institutions of higher ed. This is going to be a conversation that we're going to be engaged in as Christians uh, in, in, in the U.S. as fewer and fewer families seek um, specifically religiously affiliated education for their children. Um, I also noted in here that we're talking about uh, a lot of schools in what I would describe as urban centers. So the Catholic Archdiocese oh, yeah. of Los Angeles down 12% at the start of the school year. New York enrollment down 11%. Um, a really uh, incredible percentage of Catholic schools closing in the city of Boston or the or in the Archdiocese of Boston. Um, and so I think that, you know, we're talking about urban centers where there might be a population of people who would be interested in attending those schools, um, but they would now be the urban poor. And the yeah. urban poor often don't have the kind of uh, financial access that or 
flexibility maybe um, to have their kids yeah. in these kinds of schools. And then I think that the growth of the charter school and homeschool movement and networks maybe now attracts students who might have gone to Catholic school in the past. Bingo. Yeah. And I, I, there's two points I think uh, you bring up that I just are so spot on. Uh, the first being, it's almost like an ecosystem to a certain extent, right? You have individuals mm-hmm. that are one, not practicing, um, that are not participating, they're not becoming Catholics, or they're or they're no longer practicing Catholicism. And so in turn, they're either moving to the suburbs or they're just staying where they are and they're just not supporting the, the Catholic Church to the extent that they were. And so you have families that typically would would rely on uh, scholarship funds or you know, they're just not there there's just a, a less individuals that are supporting Catholic the US Catholic Church here and the reason why you're seeing such a decline not only in the number of students but also the number of uh, priests that are going to seminary or just the number of people that are populating uh, the, uh, the pews during mass and the second piece that I think is really worthy of consideration is just the the gangbusters, the movement that's happening among classical education here in the U.S., especially among evangelicals. I dare mm-hmm. say this, the secondary school movement, the best thing that the, uh, the Christian church has going for it, evangelical church, is the classical school movement. Because you, there's just there's been tremendous growth that's happened over the past 10 years as just as just embracing that classic model. And I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if I was a betting man, and I'm not a betting man, but if I was a betting man, I would say that we're, we're seeing a pretty sizable uptick of individuals that are come, that would traditionally go to a Catholic school for their pri- private education, secondary education, that are making their way now toward these evangelical classical schools. Um, I'll say amen to that, being a classical school mom myself. All right, uh, Nick Pitts and I will return to this conversation in just a moment. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. We're going to turn to a uh, a piece posted of the Gospel Coalition. Who's more political, progressive or conservative Christians? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Hey, before um, Nick and I take up the next portion of our conversation, um, sometimes I hear from people who listen to the first hour of the show and they're like, you never give anything away. Um, okay, so we have this giveaway going on right now. Uh, the, uh, we're giving away copies of Fields of Gold, uh, and it is by Andy Stanley. And we're giving away, let's just say, a generous number of copies. And so um, go to MyFaithRadio.com, click on the Fields of Gold giveaway, get all of the information um, about that. There you go. That's for my that's for my first hour folks who don't often get giveaway um, opportunities because we often do them in the second half of the second hour. All right, Nick, there you go. I just sometimes, you know, hey, a little business. Note. <laughs> right. All right. So um, who is more political, progressive or conservative Christians? Isn't that interesting? So just context uh, for your purposes and for your audience purposes, I see this dynamic of progressive Christianity and then, uh, uh, or I'll say, uh, actively involved Christians from both ends of the spectrum a lot every time I'm around the family table. And so this was just a fascinating uh, article that was on the Gospel Coalition because I, I wasn't just reading uh, just research findings. I was also being recalled to the family dinner table at Thanksgiving or at 
4th of July, et cetera. And so this was really interesting, some of the work that uh, the research that came out and will be coming out full, fuller later this summer in the One Faith No Longer book. But what, what he found is that um, individuals that are on a left of center are more political um, uh, Christians than individuals that are right of center. Okay, so that doesn't actually surprise me. Having, yeah. you know, having had a lot of experience in a liberal mainline denomination, I would definitely say that the people who are progressive in terms of their understanding of the Christian faith are absolutely more politically engaged and more political than are evangelical Christians. And here's, here's at least in my own experience, um, how that breaks down. Evangelical Christians have as their, like, first priority evangelism. Mm-hmm. And and this, you know, kingdom mentality, king and king and kingdom that are not of this world. Yeah, I mean, we live it out in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, but we are ultimately interested in the advancement of another kingdom. My mm-hmm. progressive Christian friends um, are more often less interested in evangelism as we would have as we would historically understand the term, and much more interested. In social justice, and they see that played out very effectively through politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's very much a Matthew twenty five via Matthew twenty eight uh, perspective or emphasis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That you've got mm-hmm. uh, that you've got progressive Christianity that would say do for the least of these um, would be very much the emphasis there. Whereas, like you like you already said, the Matthew 28 piece of the Great Commission to go out and really places an emphasis on the spiritual components of it. You know, what I, what I thought was so fascinating was, was the line that he says, progressive Christians have an underlying value system that leads them to stronger political lo- loyalty than the value system of, of conservative Christian does. Progressive Christians trust values such as social justice, inclusion, and tolerance. For many progressive Christians, these values are best shown through the understanding of progressive political ideology. You know, this was most illuminated for me um, in uh, Tim Carney's Alienated America. Um, And and Carney was interviewing Bernie Sanders. uh, And Bernie is a I believe that he's an atheist. And I know that he's um, he's a vowed democratic socialist. But he was just stressing so much why he did not, why he thought it was insufficient for individuals to just give to charities. Um, And because you always hear the remark from a, especially from a conservative standpoint, hear the mark, we don't want Uncle Sam to distribute our funds to the least of these. We want to be the uh, individuals that distribute those funds. Mm -hmm. But for Sanders, what he said was, uh, well, I don't I don't want to give more to charities. I want to give more to the government because the government is more equitable um, in distributing those funds. And so it wasn't that Sanders was less charitable, which I think is I think is a charitable way to view it. It wasn't that he was less charitable, but rather that he just trusted the government more than he trusted people to make sure that all people were being cared for. And I think that's a very when you step take a step back from that, it's a very stark difference of of saying that um, for progressive Christianity there needs to be an intermediary to make sure no one misses out. Hence the reason why there's an emphasis on political engagement because they're assuming that the 
political apparatus is going to create a quality and an equitable distribution of care. Whereas for a conservative Christian, um, there's much more of a sense of God has put particular passions inside of all of us, and we, we need to uh, heed that, or as it says in 1 Peter 4.10, to not forsake the using of your gift for the buildup of the body. Yeah, that question of trust um, is mm-hmm. huge. And I think that, you know, if we recognize that everything that we have is from God and it's given to us as a trust and we are stewards over it, then we see ourselves as responsible to be responsible mm-hmm. stewards of that which God has placed under our management. And and then we're uh, and then we're asked to in, to entrust that to a government that is intentionally godless. And that's hard for us. Like, right? that's just really, really, that's hard for us as um, as conservative Christians. So there you go. It's a very interesting article. It's a good conversation starter. It's at thegospelcoalition.org. And it, it does ask the, the question, who's more political, progressive or conservative Christians? Uh, Nick, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for helping us unpack a few of the headlines of the day. Great to be with you, Karen. Great to be with you, too. That's Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can find him on Twitter at JNickPitts. We'll be right back. All right, there's a lot going on uh, in Israel and overhead uh, in the skies. There's a lot going on on the ground. Luke Moon is going to join us next from the Philos Project. We're going to talk about the current situation in Israel. This is a fast-developing story. We'll be right back. While at an airport recently, I watched a dad snap at his 14-year-old son. They had spotted a famous football player in the concourse and asked for a photograph with him. But the whole time they were with the athlete, dad publicly criticized his son. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I'm sure that father was trying to get his son to shape up. He acted embarrassed rather than showing pride in his son. But as I watched the scene, I could see the anger and poor self-esteem emerge from that teenage boy. What could have been a great father and son opportunity turned into a memorable time of shame for this young boy. The lesson here is easy. Compliment your teenagers often in front of others, and you will give them a reputation to live up to. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Wise men will bow down before the throne, and at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns. When the man comes around, whoever <coughs> is unjust, let him be. Paul, introduce him. Uh oh. Okay. Well, we have Luke Moon right now here on Mornings with Carmen uh, from the Philos Project. How you doing, Luke? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, I think uh, Car- Carmen was snacking on something. I think something caught in her throat. Sorry. Okay, started, there you are. I started to say that's the walk-up music for Luke Moon, and then the the, <laughs> the sentence got completely caught in my throat. And so, Luke, welcome back, man. Thank you. Thank you. It's yeah. good to be here. It's good to have you. Up. All right. There is a lot going on. I want to jump right in. The current situation in Israel, it's a very fast-developing story. Here were my, um, here's what I wanted to ask about. The Temple Mount, the Al-Asra Mosque, Jerusalem Day, Ramadan, the Jews and the Arabs, Israel's fa- failure to form a unity government, Jordan's king, the West Bank settlements, 
right? The right to defend themselves, like all of that is wound up in this. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it is wound up in it and it's, it, but it's, you know, the headlines are really coming out around the, the rockets and the violence that's taken place right now on the, to go on the Temple Mount, but not just on Temple Mount. So I don't know how you want me to go back through the story here a little bit. I want I want you to go. I want you to set a context, because as I read the headlines, one of the things that seems missing is like just open reference to the fact that this is the Temple Mount. And instead, I see headlines that are suggesting that the Israelis are keeping um, Arabs from uh, from the Al-Asra Mosque. Like there there are two storylines here, and I want people to understand this piece of earth. Right. Well, it also comes out of a place, right? So here's what happened. You have a village. You have a village in East Jerusalem. That, I mean, it's not. It's it's part of Jerusalem. So call it. Let's call it a neighborhood, Sheikh Jarrah, right? So Sheikh Jarrah was originally a Jewish town, or Jewish neighborhood, uh, when Jordan pushed the the Jews out in in 1948, um, and basically created, you know, the the 67 line, as they call it, uh, the Jordanians moved, moved uh, Arabs into that town, Palestinians. And and then when the Palestinian, when, when the when Jordan was kicked out and and Jerusalem was unified, uh, you know, a few years later, uh, some some through through a intermediary intermediary, there was a the, the, the Jews purchased the buildings back. Right from from the Palestinian owners, the Arab owners, and the Palestinians living there have not paid any rent for years, and it's gone on up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, has looked at the matter, sees the deeds, and goes, well, "You got to pay," and and so there's eviction notices, but so that's the kind of backdrop by which a lot of this started happening. Is is there was protests over the eviction of people out of Sheikh Jarrah, and it. But at the same time, you have the the uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who's the head of the Fatah party, the main leader in, in the West Bank. He was going to hold elections, and then he said, "No, we're just not going to hold elections." And so uh, Hamas has been using this story with Sheikh Jarrah as a backdrop to start agitating against Israel. And then there was uh, some, some kind of skirmishes on the Temple Mount that have since kind of basically exploded uh, and have begun to produce a lot more protests. And uh, I mean, there's pictures uh, all over Twitter these days of, you know, piles of rocks in Al-Aqsa Mosque, right? So it's, you know, it's, it's no, it's all peace and love and everything. And, and yet, well, what's the rocks doing there? It's, well, it's, and it's boarded up the buildings and there it's, it's, there's a lot of agitation going around. So, in, so into that, of course, then Hamas starts launching rockets yesterday or the day before, and, and uh, there's been 300 rockets overnight, some of which have uh, fallen and been targeted towards Jerusalem. One actually ended up uh, uh, in Abu Ghush, which is the Palestinian neighborhood that a lot of people visit when they visit Israel because it's got good hummus. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mess. I don't know yeah, there's, 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 good hummus, uh, there's good hummus <laughs> everywhere in the region. I do think we could set, we could agree on that. Right, right, right. Okay. So when um when 
when Luke and I are talking about the Temple Mount, um, if you have been uh, to Israel, if you have been to Jerusalem, you know exactly what we're talking about, um, particularly if you have been privileged to stand at the Western Wall um, and look up with the Jews, um, or if you have been privileged because you uh, have uh, have a friend like Luke, um, if you've been privileged to actually go up onto um, the top and walk around, um, then you know what we're talking about, and you know what it feels like. You, the the uh, The air is flick is uh, thick with conflict all the time. Um, it doesn't yeah. feel like a um, yeah like an American shopping mall. Uh, it it definitely it doesn't feel like walking around Washington D.C. and looking at um, you know, really cool uh, stuff. It's very different. It's a very different experience. I mean, I remember you you guys telling us, like, don't go up there and close your eyes and, and act like you're praying. And certainly don't be praying. Like, it's not legit for us to do that. That seems crazy to those of us who wander around with the religious liberty that we have here. So tell people what is currently on the Temple Mount and why the Jews allow that to happen. Right. So on top of the Temple Mount, I think most people who have seen any photograph of Jerusalem will have seen the Dome of the Rock, which is is believed by, I think, most people to be the spot where the where the where the temple uh, of David, Temple of Solomon was built. Right. And the under Holy the of Dome Holies, the Holy of Holies. And in the in that spot, there's a there's a stone called the foundation stone. And you know, for Jews and and uh, Muslims, it's like that's a. I mean, the Jews believe that's the foundation stone of the world, right? It's the, it's the place upon which God formed Adam. It's the place upon which uh, Abraham uh, was going to sacrifice Isaac, right? So it's a, it's you know, it's a, it's a very kind of sacred place to Jews, and then they, for for the for the Arabs, it's a it's a sacred place as well, and. And next to that, also on the same platform, is what's known as Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the third holiest uh, mosque in 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 Islam. Uh, it's where Muhammad, when, you know, had this flying horse that flew him up to heaven, and there's this. It's all connected there, right at that one spot. Now, when when Israel retook Jerusalem and unified it, and that's what was being celebrated was the reunification of Jerusalem. Uh, there was there, there was an opportunity by which, you know, Israel could take back the Temple Mount, and they, they even flew a flag up there, and and quickly, like within within, you know, a, an hour, the 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 leaders of Israel were like, no, take down that f- flag. We're just we're, we will allow that to be under the custodianship of Jordan, uh, because we're we're just our we want Jerusalem. We want the Western Wall. That's what we want, right? And so they kept, and and to this day, uh, Jordan has custodianship, meaning like basically it's you know for all intents and purposes Jordan law up there, and Jews uh, are and Christians are not allowed to go up on the Temple Mount and pray. Um, you can't bring your Bible. You can't bring any paraphernalia. If you you know you can't even wear a cross around your neck uh, when you go up there. Uh, and you know that has been part of the status quo for you know basically since '67. And there's a group of Jews, and there's a group of there's a group of Jews who are like enough already. 
right? Like that's where the temple was. And, and they're like, they want to be able to walk up there. They want to be able to pray up there. And so the status quo has been weakening over the years. uh, And in a a more and more vocal group of, of Jewish leaders are basically saying uh, like, no, we need to have a, be able to have a synagogue up there. We need to be able to go up there freely. We need to be able to like, you know, and, and so it, you know, that kind of stuff also uh, causes a lot of agitation. But, you know, the thing is, this kind of violence that we're seeing right now uh, hasn't happened in a few years. It's been a while. I mean, it's like you have skirmishes here and there, but nothing like the, to what we're seeing. And and unfortunately, you know, it's enough time has passed where I think people have forgotten how how bad it can get. So, yeah. Yeah. So I want to remind um, you, if you're listening right now uh, and you want to engage in this conversation today, uh, this conversation about the foundation stone, um, this conversation about what worship uh, is built upon and where worship rightly happens and and who it is that is worshiped and how, I want you to consider all of the places in the New Testament where there is a conversation about a stone, a cornerstone, a foundation stone, a living stone. Um, upon this rock, I will build my church. First uh, uh, Peter two four and two six and Ephesians two. I want you to think about um, why Jesus, when he said, "This building here, you know, uh, you know, bring it down, and uh, and I can rebuild it in three days." The the conversations about the temple, the temple mount, and what is foundational to the faith is huge. And it's a huge conversation. It is the ultimate conversation happening uh, between Jews, Muslims, and Christians. It's just not often the conversation we're actually having. So, uh, Luke, thank you for helping us have the conversation in light of the headlines of the day. When we come back, uh, Luke and I are going to talk about a very significant individual um, and and eulogize him right here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, continuing my conversation with Luke Moon. You can find him at the Philos Project. You can also find him at Providence Mag. Hey, lots of great stuff, by the way, uh, if you haven't checked it out lately. Lots of great stuff posted at ProvidenceMag.com. Um, I particularly enjoyed reading um, what um, what Yusuf's 2021 report got right and wrong, if you're interested in international religious freedom, which, of course, I know you are. There's also a great piece on religious persecution in China intensifying. Um, and then uh, and then uh, a video um, by Dr. Paul D. Miller, who has joined us uh, before. He's uh, there with Mark Lavecki, and they're talking about America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. So again, all of that at ProvidenceMag.com. Luke, let's, um, let's talk about um, Yitzhak Arad. Why, uh, who is he and why are we eulogizing him today? So Yitzhak was basically the chief educational person behind uh, the uh, Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is, is basically the Holocaust uh, memorial. Uh, you know, call, it's hard to say, call it a museum, but it, it remembers the, you know, the whole Holocaust story. Um, and he, you know, he was one of those guys who, who went through the Holocaust. He was in that generation that, that made it to Israel that were a part of building Israel. And that first generation really struggled to come to terms with 
you know, I mean, you got to think like, why did I make it? Why didn't my, you know, maybe they're the only member of their entire extended family that survived. And how do you, how do you tell your story? How do you recover well or live well with that in mind? And, and so Yad Vashem uh, was that whole Holocaust memorial site that, that Israel built to, to remember and, and to pass on the remembrance to their children and grandchildren. And it was, there was a lot of controversy at the beginning on how to do it. How do you remember this experience? And, um, and I think for any Christian needs to, at the very least, visit a, a Holocaust memorial somewhere in, in, they're all over the United States, but they need to visit that because we share a, a big history. Um, and one of the unfortunate things that you see when you visit Yad Vashem is the pictures of Hitler standing with with pastors, uh, and the you know there's a there's a there's a picture uh, depicting statues, one representing ecclesia and one represents synagogia, that are on uh, cathedrals and churches all over Europe, Protestant churches, not just Catholic ones, and th this kind of like the ecclesia has defe defeated synagogia, one you know the church defeats the synagogue and. It's all this framing was very much wrapped up in Christian language, and and we share, unfortunately, a long history of Christian anti-Semitism, and that's on display there. And one that I think Christians have to to, to a come become aware of, and b then when we see Christians behaving anti in an anti-Semitic way, we need to to call that out. I think it's very important. And and Yitzhak was part of that. He helped design uh, the memorial. He helped design the memorial where you walk through and you see this, you know, how this happened. How did the persecution, it, you know, like persecution often does, it doesn't start with killing. It starts with dehumanizing. Uh, and you see that uh, all over the place today and, and uh, in s situations where genocide is rising, the dehumanization um, begins to uh, is is the first stop on that train, and unfortunately, for for the Jews, it started with dehumanization, and and the trains that ended at Auschwitz, where people were put in 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 chambers, uh, murdered uh, with gas, and then and then and then burned up, and it's that's tragic. And then you know one of the things that I love actually about Yahweh Hashem, it's hard to say that is is at the end you walk out and you're overlooking. Uh, a valley, but in the distance you see the city of Jerusalem. And I always take people from that experience, and it's a very hard experience. It takes several hours to go through, and you know, I guarantee you, you know, you cry. But you go from there, you see Jerusalem in the distance, and we always go to the market uh, in Jerusalem after visiting Yad Vashem, because to see the the Jews walking around the market and buying food, and and for, they're from all over the world. And, you bring in all these smells, and it's basically a statement to the Nazis that they didn't win, right? That they, at the end of the day, the Jews made it, and the Nazis did not. There are the Nazis are no more, and the Jews have a state, and there are people, and there are proud people, and and um, it's it's an important place to go, but it's an important place to also remember our our part in that, but also uh, the 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 future and uh, and the and the future of the Jewish people as as part of God's redemptive plan for humanity. 
so many of the things that we experienced um, when when I had the opportunity to to go with Philos um, to Israel a number of years ago. Um, so many things stand out in my mind from that trip. But Yad Vashem definitely um, emerges as the most like physical. Uh, it's something that I didn't just experience uh, with my eyes or with my heart, but like it, it's a physical. Like it comes, it comes back to you physically. Um, the floor is hard. Um, it's it's an it's an uncomfortable place to be. It's um, it's not like you could turn around and backtrack. Like there's an intentional directionality to the whole thing. You move deeper and deeper into the experience and into the story. Um, the shoes, like I, I just that comes right back to haunt me just right now in this moment. Um, but then also the names and the pictures that are like in that cyclone of, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, and they're all around in every direction and it just goes up and up and up and up and up. And then, um, and then, as you said, I mean, when you come out into the light and you are looking over the valley and and into Jerusalem and then the garden of the righteous, um, also stands out to me as well, Luke, that, you know, oh, yeah. there is this there's this honoring of non-Jews who during the Holocaust risked their lives to save the Jews. And that Garden of the Righteous is a pretty powerful place as well. Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's a it's an amazing place. And we can thank uh, Yitzhak uh, for for helping helping us experience that that well. And and hopefully, you know, it motivates us to. To actually, you know, when we say never again, we mean it, right? When mm-hmm. we when we mm-hmm. look at what's happening with the Uyghurs, we can mm-hmm. be we can we can be zealous for the Uyghurs because we saw what what happened to the Jews. Yeah, genocide means even something. Though, you know, even yeah, though the, the Uyghurs are Muslim, right? And even though, like, you know, it's like as a Christian, I'm, you know, I there's stuff happening. They're people the made in the in, image of in, God. Amen. Exactly. In Nigeria yeah. and places all over the world, and 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 yet when when this kind of like major attempted extermination happens, that's when we we really have to uh, put our big boy pants on and yeah. and and really get into it. Yeah, Luke, as always, thank you so much. You guys can find Luke at the Philos Project. You can also uh, find great stuff at ProvidenceMag dot com. Excellent, excellent resources. As always, Luke, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Carmen. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. All right, it's a long, uh, it's a long road of faith and faithfulness, um, and we have a faithful God. You got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.